Welcome, everyone. You know, I was going to wait for another minute to start to let people gather in chat, but Richard Petz just said in chat that he uh, punctuality is important to him, and I agreed. So here I am starting on time. Um, <laughs> welcome, everyone. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts here on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter Laren, and uh, this is a show I try and do every week, although... I'm not always successful getting it done every week. Uh, I apologize to those of you who missed me last week. Um, I did write an article. I don't forget what it was about. Oh, I think it was about the looming recession. <laughs> um, so, you know, you could read, but uh, we missed the show last week. So I apologize, but I am back. I'm back today, obviously. Uh, on today's agenda, what we're going to talk about is uh, the best way to effectively fight the culture war. Um, it's probably an answer that will not satisfy a number of you, but you know, tough shit. Uh, a side benefit to my answer is it comes with an increased passion in your life and meaning in your life. It's a great answer. It's just not the answer that some of you want. I know what you want is like some pity, a zinger to share on Twitter <laughs> that will, everyone will suddenly see, oh, Elizabeth Warren's completely wrong. Uh, anyway, before we start the show, uh, please take a moment to make sure you are subscribed on YouTube, especially because they like to unsubscribe people constantly um, without their knowledge. Uh, also on Rumble, we're trying to do a little bit more on Rumble and on Odyssey. Those are the three main platforms. You can support us financially by going to unsafespace.com. There's ways to donate there. We do uh, survive this show and every other show on the channel survives only through your donations. So appreciate that. Oh, and you can share, share the show. Uh, this show's got a lot of evergreen content, so does Rebel Civics. Um, but sharing it around helps as well. So there we go. So let's let's uh let's jump in. Let's talk about the culture war. I'm I'm kind of using that in quotes a little bit because this is really a war of values and culture is kind of a sloppy term, but uh it's a war of values. And uh, let me explain why I want to talk about this big topic today. Um, you know, I've been paying attention to, obviously I've been paying attention to this channel and this show and what topics seem to get more attention than other topics. It's not topics I would necessarily choose to get more attention, but there you go. Um, and, you know, we are operating in this attention economy. People are addicted to news cycles. Um, and in particular, they want outrage. If I wanted to, if my goal was to maximize profits, I can put that in quotes because there are no profits, maximize revenue for this show and every other show on the channel, I would come on every day and work myself up into a frenzy ranting about something that, you know, AOC was doing or how stupid Biden was, and a lot of people would applaud and clap because they would feel like I was on their side in this political battle, and politics is very passionate, very important to people. They get very excited about it. Um, so, yay, that's, that's how you do it. I know how to do it. I just don't want to. Um, People are addicted to the news cycle. They want this outrage. If you look at the shows recently on Dangerous Thoughts that have done the best are the ones that are like, 
hair Biden and I've got his his picture of Biden and I'm rightly chastising him for his fascist remarks and aesthetic um, like those kind of shows do well. And I'm not saying none of that stuff is valuable. There are a lot of people who are re really good at better at me that, at doing outrage rants. Um, and that's important. It's important to do practice the application of reason, which is a lot of what we do on this show. We, you know, we'll, we'll pick a news article or something in current events and I'll walk through and be like, look, this is why this makes no sense and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, it, you know, it helps people clarify their thinking. It helps me clarify my thinking for any particular topic. So the application of philosophy is not an endeavor that I'm saying is useless. The problem is, and by the way, thank you again to Richard Petz, who's been throwing money uh, at the show today. He says connection to reality is foremost. I should probably put this on screen like I'm actually doing my job. He says connection to reality is foremost. I just ordered a jam master jig for installing doors, a job that's very unforgiving to sloppy work and physics. Yeah, I think uh, doing work in reality, it's hard to be a postmodernist because um, your soliloquies about the straightness of the door uh, don't really don't really matter to the door. Um, anyhow, the problem here is it's like I said, this that stuff's valuable. It's all good, but politics. This is the part no one's going to want to hear. Politics is a distraction, ultimately. Um, not because it's unrelated to the culture war or to values, or that politics is unimportant. It is important. It is related. Like That's all true. Um, the reason I view it as, as a distraction is, is because in endless fighting about politics, when you feel like you've won, you made an argument, um, you know, the, the left will say, will make fun of the conservatives for, quote, owning the libs, right? Um, when you make, when you make those kind of arguments, um, and you win and you prove, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt to anyone who happens to be listening that AOC is a moron, um, you feel like you've won and it's this endless firefighting. If you've ever been in a job where you're just firefighting constantly, you never, you never make forward progress. You never get anything done because you're constantly like responding. You're interrupt driven. You're responding to fires and emails and texts and you got to fix this and got to fix this and you never never move forward you never make any progress anyone who's managed uh a team should probably be aware of that and most people who've worked on a team should be aware of that um and the best case when you're doing this political battle is you win the battle but you're sacrificing the war in order to feel good about winning a battle that's basically what's going on here and again, I think there's a role for politics. We do have to, you know, I've talked about this before. I'm a big fan of breaking up the U.S., getting back to 50 states with their own independent governments and trying to focus locally on producing something that can uh, maybe a <laughs> building a giant wall around a state to keep Washington out, something um, so that we have uh, a, a relatively pro-liberty area from which to work, a, a home base. But um but politics isn't going to solve our problem. And, 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 uh, woke a mole. Someone's <laughs> that's a great, someone in chat called it a woke a mole. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like that. So, uh, our culture, this, our culture war. And, and when I'm talking about culture here, what, what really matters, I said was shared values. I mean, really shared meta metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. Those are the three main things that matter 
the most kind of a, a base uh, agreement on those as a, as a culture. And those are those matter a lot more than politics. I've said a bunch of times uh, what I always thought was kind of pithy, but no one really cares. Uh, they'll let you have the Constitution so long as they can have the dictionary, right? And the, the reason for that is the Constitution already has guardrails. But if you decide to interpret words however you want, the guardrails are irrelevant. So you can argue over what laws should say. But if someone else owns what words mean, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time. Uh, <laughs> Richard Pett says, yes, Carter, funny. But this morning I asked the same question. We're busy in skirmishes, but forgetting the war. Yeah, that's why I want to have this conversation tonight. That's that motivation for this conversation. Because I was thinking about, I started this show with like, I mean, this week I was like, okay, what should I talk about? The formula that we've kind of worked out that gets more attention is like, oh, I need to find some big person who made some mistake and explain why it's wrong. And if it's, you know, whether it's a hit piece on Matt Walsh and why that's wrong or whether it's Biden being an idiot or maybe Klaus Schwab, I can throw him up. Everyone loves that. They'll click on the Klaus Schwab thumbnail and I can say something nasty about the World Economic Forum and, and a bunch of people will feel excited about that. Um, but like I said, I don't think that's what really matters. Um, and the allegory I'm going to use here uh, for this culture war is imagine you're, you're building a sand castle on a beach. And you are dealing with this problem that these waves keep coming and knocking portions of your sand castle down. And you're with your friends and you're strategizing. What, what are we going to do? We have to, I know what we'll do. We're going to build a higher wall here. We're going to make this wall thicker so when the wave comes, okay? And you, you work on that. And then someone, maybe, so, you know, someone's like, I know what we'll do. We'll build a moat in front so that the wave, you know, if there happens to be a big wave, it'll mostly get absorbed by the moat and that will protect the rest of the castle. And you guys spend uh, hours focusing on this. And what you don't notice is that the tide is coming in. And no matter what you do, it's inevitable that your sandcastle will be six feet under. So will your blanket and chair and cooler. You're going to have to move. You're too close to the water and the tide is coming in. And you're not focused on that at all. You're focused on fighting the waves as they come. That's where we are in America. The tide, the cultural philosophical tide is coming in and it's getting <laughs> that's why you're noticing waves hitting your castle more. That's why you're like, hey, what did they do to education? What's going on? Why are they teaching my kindergartner about anal sex? Hey, what's going on? That's why the tide has come in. And that tide moves much more slowly than waves. It's much less visible. You don't sit on the beach and watch the tide come in. Like, it's very hard to do. It's kind of like watching grass grow. It takes hours, right? So, um, but that, but that's the situation we find ourselves in. And the war is about the tides. So this is where the allegory breaks down because we don't really, without, unless NASA figures out a way to move the moon in orbit, we're not going to change the tides. But in, the allegory breaks down there because it is a tidal war. We can battle, we can have a war, and we should be having a war over the tide <laughs> and where it is. Um, and... I think to one of the things that we should do when we ask like, okay, well, how can we effectively have that war? Let's stop worrying. It doesn't mean, like I said, it doesn't mean building the mode and the thicker walls is not a bad idea. It's a good idea for the waves. I get it. But there's this bigger concern. How do you have the battle uh, 
to change the tide? How do you have the, or to maybe move, right? How do you have the battle to over the tide? Well, I think we should look at history here because there's something that we can learn. The founding fathers were headed in the right direction in 1776. Clearly, there were some imperfections. I think it's anyone who's going to pretend that what I'm saying is that they were perfect and all their stuff was perfect is not worthy of this show. So I'm not going to respond to that. Clearly, there were imperfections and inconsistencies. Frederick Douglass talked about them on his famous Fourth of July speech in 1852. But the direction was the direction was great. In fact, it was the most uh, it was the biggest step forward for uh, ethical government in the history of mankind. Right. It was it was an enormous step forward. It was this recognition that there was no divine right of kings. It was this recognition that individuals had rights uh, and that the governments were instituted to protect those rights. Like, that's amazing. It, it was a recognition that rights were a priori to government, not gifts from the king. All this stuff was great. This was and this is what we celebrate. This is what I celebrate when I celebrate America. This is a great directionally. Right. Um. So you might ask yourself, okay, how is it that here we are almost 300 years later, we're at a moment in history in which all of the founding fathers would be considered either A, crazy libertarians and get marginalized and laughed at for their naivete, or B, would literally be on the FBI's hit list as alt-right, you know, anti-government terrorists. That's it. Those are the categories. There's no other category. There would be no Republican founding fathers. There would be no Democrat founding fathers. They would be, they would be on, they would be either the crazy libertarians that everyone was ignoring or literally on like FBI watch lists. That that's it. Those would be our founding fathers. Those are the people that we look up to in history for those of us who look at history. I'm going to read another super chat quickly. Richard is on fire today. He says, that's what I was trying to get to in my signal noise idea. However, poorly I explained it. My bad. Uh, it could easily be my comprehension, Richard. So <laughs> don't, don't, don't apologize. Anyhow, um, I'm glad we're getting to it, if this is what you wanted to talk about. So if we look at, if we look at history there, let's look at history from the left's perspective from this perspective of the authoritarian busybodies who want you to eat the bugs, let's look at it from their perspective. Because if we don't understand their perspective and what they did to get here, how, like, we're not learning from history. How are we going to fight them? How are we going to, how are we going to make a counter move if we don't even understand what the hell happened to get us to this point? We have to understand what they did. Now, I've used this analogy before, but I like it, so I'm going to keep I'm going to keep using this. It, it's not really an analogy; it's a framework. It's a way of thinking about this stuff. In pre-revolutionary France, there were the three estates. I'll, I'll go quickly because I've said this a lot. First estate was the clergy. Second estate was the nobility. Third estate was the rest of us, all all of us, the unwashed masses. And uh, obviously, they. were in a position of power prior to things like the American Revolution. I know they didn't exist here, but this is just, again, this is a framework. Um, 
when you when you had something like the American American Revolution and you and you had a government and a society organized in the way that the Americans organized things, you notice that the first and second estates suddenly lose power. There's no place for uh, clergy. I mean, obviously, there's a place for private clergy, but like, there's no place for a clergy class that that dictates what's right and wrong. There's no place for a nobility class, which is basically the administrators who tax and run everything and do. There's no place for them anymore. Um, there's not there's no room in the constitution for that. There wasn't supposed to be. And. This, I think, whether consciously or not, this is this is what they sought to fix. This is what they sought to fix. They needed a place for themselves. And they were focused on the long game. Right? They had lost the short, they had lost the short term, they lost the war, <laughs> right? Um, clearly just reading contemporary documents at the time and the constitution that that uh was ratified. Clearly, arguments about nobility ruling things would have not worked. So standing on street corners and writing little manifestos about that wasn't a way to go. The political battle would have been lost. It was hopeless. So what they did was they focused on the long-term battle. Now, I'm saying maybe they didn't do this consciously, but I will say intelligent people throughout history have recognized the power of ideas. So some of this was very likely conscious. Uh, it's not rocket science. A lot of people dismiss ideas as useless, but in intelligent people understand their power. And there are plenty of intelligent people who look at that time who said, well, I don't like the way this is going. <laughs> I don't like the unwashed masses are potentially in charge. And of course, there were also people who recognized the, the danger of the mob. So they lost control of these institutions. Um, they lost control. They lost that moral authority. Uh, and the reason they lost that moral authority uh, and, the, and the ability to exercise that control and, and the reason, sorry, the reason they couldn't win it back with politics is because of context, the cultural context, the values that were pervasive in society at the time wouldn't have worked, right? This, it was a largely individualist, I mean, not again, not perfectly, but a largely individualist mindset. Um, it was antithetical to the collectivist aristocracy mindset. Their arguments would have fallen on deaf ears. So what did they need to do in the long term? What if you're an intellectual and you're you're wanting a return of some variation of the first and second estate? You don't like this. You don't trust the freedom. You don't like this liberty idea. What do you need to do? How do you need what are your what's your strategy? Well, I think a very effective strategy and, and looks like was theirs was, well, you need to recreate um, a you know, or, or create possibly for the first time, but you need to create a desire in that third estate to be livestock. You need to destroy that individual spirit. You need dependency. You want them to want to be livestock. Um, you want them to build their cages voluntarily and you want them to invite you to run the farm which means you need to control the sentiment of the mob. The mob is in power now. I'm, I'm saying the mob kind of derisively, but in the past, it didn't matter what the third estate thought. You were nobility, you were clergy, you guys made the decisions. Now you recognize, oh, the power is in this large group of people who vote through 
this pseudo democratic democratic system, this republic. I need to control their sentiment. If I control their sentiment, then I control. I can build whatever I want. Um, and manipulating people, large masses of people with ideas is a tried and true and proven technique over the course of history. So, in other words, they needed to change these, these ideas, the sentiment, the philosophy of people over many generations. Instead of trying, again, instead of trying to perfect their, their political arguments in the context of the individualist sentiment at the time, because that would have been doomed, it wouldn't work. So they focused on this long game. Okay, so how'd they focus on the long game? Richard, Richard again says, keyword equals sentiment. Yeah, and there, and I'm using that word uh, intentionally because there's an emotional component to this. Um, it's what people mean when they talk about the American spirit, right? There's an emotional sense uh, that resists having the oppressive yoke of an aristocracy burdening you. And you might also have intellectual arguments for it, but there's an emotional sense of it. That emotional sense needs to be changed and broken. So what's one of the major vectors? This isn't everything that they can that they did, but what's one of the major vectors that they that they attacked? Well, they attacked universities. I say attacked. I mean, they got jobs. That's the attack. They got jobs at universities. That was the extent of the thing that got paid, right? Um, why? Why go to universities? Well, um, there was a strong uh, social sentiment of free speech. Uh, there was a respect for free speech. And that allows for an unrestricted experimentation with big ideas. You can have ideas. If there's, if people are going to leave you alone in the university and, and let you wax philosophical about anything you'd like, um, you know, then, then that's a great place to be if you're trying to figure out the, the ideas necessary to reinstate the aristocracy that you, you so long for. Um, and, you know, at the time, a lot of the productive people, and I'm not, I'm not counting most of the, these university people as productive. A lot of the productive people were, were busy enjoying their new freedoms, right? Uh, they were, they were busy like, yay, <laughs> we're free. The industrial revolution is here. We got stuff to do. You guys work out the universities. We're not paying too much attention, obviously, for the hard sciences that still mattered. But for a lot of the big idea stuff, the results of big idea stuff that don't come to fruition for generations generally. So there's not really a lot of oversight there. There wasn't a lot of vigilance in terms of policing what was acceptable ideology, uh, what was, and, and what, and what was ideology that would undermine the very uh, revolution that they just won or undermine the, the ideas. And of course, America also wanted to appear grown up to the rest of the world. So they wanted, you know, uh, respectable institutions. And they turned to the <laughs> Europe's bathtub of philosophical botulism called Germany. Uh, it is Germany has the dubious reputation uh, of being the absolute cesspool of philosophy. So uh, they <laughs> they turned to Germany and they copied a bunch of German stuff uh, and brought those ideas to America to found 
and build universities. And this means that this, this class of people was free. They were left alone to conceive and develop mind viruses in, in the, the bathtubs of the university. Um, and free to develop and distribute these, you know, philosophical bioweapons without anyone really bothering them. Because they didn't run around saying America sucks, blah, 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 right? They, that's not what they were talking about. They didn't, they didn't run around saying, you know, I don't like this new thing. I think we should have aristocracy. They, that wouldn't have worked. They knew that. Instead, they just, mm, let's just talk about ethics generally and let's, let's undermine some of this stuff, right? They certainly loved it when Immanuel Kant came along. So here we are. By the time we get into the late 1800s, uh, this is now we've got uh, a bunch of progressives running around in these universities and in intellectual institutions. Marx has hit the scene by this, well, by the late, late. Uh, Marx has hit the scene. Um, you've got a lot of racism still. A lot of the progressives were quite racist, as they still are. Um, this is the Charles Dickens era. Right, you've got rapid industrialization. There's lots of benefits of rapid industrialization, but uh, the increased population in large cities meant the hardships associated with industrialization were, which weren't new. I mean, hardships, maybe the type of hardship was new, but the fact that humans had hard, horrible lives as, as creatures on earth was not new. Um, but the these hardships, because of the cities, were now right on the doorstep of the intellectual class. They weren't conveniently hidden away in in distant farms. You didn't, you know, you didn't have to watch children die by the dozens on farms when the farms were far away. But when they were in the city and they're dying in factories, uh, even though on average they're dying less and on average everyone's lives are better, you still look at that and say, "Oh my God, this is an atrocity." And so um, you have people like Charles Dickens who say, "Well, all these problems that we see." A, they believe they're new somehow, and B, they believe they're, they're unique to individualism. They're unique to this industrial revolution. They're unique to capitalism. It's capitalism's fault. So you get, oh, I'm going to depict, and, and by the way, he gets away with this kind of stuff, but I love his writing, by the way, but you know, not so much his philosophy. He gets away with this kind of stuff because there is no moral support for the American ideas in universities and among the uh, the intellectual class, that support has kind of, it's been slowly waning, right? So, because it's been undermined. So he gets away with like A Christmas Carol being one of the most famous stories, right? But, you know, what's the main villain? He's a capitalist, he's a greedy pig capitalist, right? Liberty is cast as an uncaring system. He conflates empathy with collectivism, which is like, you know, uh, putting fire and ice together, the complete opposites, but he pretends that empathy and collectivism are, are bound together. There's then this appeal to an altruist ethic and a vilification of the what I would call the rationally selfish ethic, the individualist ethic. There's also a misrepresentation of that particular ethic, of the rational selfish ethic, as like this non-benevolent thing um, and exploitative. This is the Scrooge just doesn't care about anyone, right? Again, all this is presented as a unique problem that's the byproduct of capitalism, which was busy providing people with the best, uh, the highest standard of living in the history of humanity. But this is, gets picked on, right? And there's this sentimentalist appeal at this point, too, uh, which is used to undermine the ideas that built America.
Now, um, one example of what the progressives are doing at this point in the late 19th century is they are they introduce this idea of experts that are needed to manage things because all these problems are seen and they're presented and people are lamenting about these problems. And of course it is sad. It's always sad when there's problems and when, when people are dying or being injured or standard of living is poor. Uh, but again, it was better than it had been. This was, this was better, but no one was admitting that they were just seeing the problems as they do with everything, including things like fossil fuels. Right? So they, they're just seeing the problems with it. And, and, and this sentiment was used to convince people uh, or growing number of people, particularly among the intellectual elite, that we needed this group of experts that needed to manage things. Um, and these experts would be produced where? Where would we get the experts? I know universities would produce the experts. And they invented fields like economics. Economics had been something that, you know, it was just money and businessmen talked about money and they understood their finance. There wasn't this like, let's talk about macroeconomics and have an economics degree. That wasn't a thing. Not that it's necessarily bad, but this is the origin of that. So they, they, they introduce uh, areas of expertise, uh, economics. I don't know, but probably things like social science, right? Public policy stuff like they, they, this all becomes part of uh, the goal of universities to churn out potential experts that could be used by an administrative state, which is the other thing they introduced, this idea that we need an, an administrative state to manage the, the proletariat, the unwashed masses. Look what happens when we leave them alone. Kids die in factories and Scrooge exists. We need to fix this. So we need some experts who know better. Now, granted, or, well, coincidentally, they were overt racists <laughs> um, back then. Some other experts needed to fix the fact that uh, the wrong people were getting jobs and getting ahead. Uh, so progressives haven't changed much, I guess, but so this, this is what's going on now. The culture itself, then the American culture, by the time we hit 1913, which is one of the worst years in American politics, uh, in terms of laws that were passed and stuff, uh, by the time you hit 1913, it's not a random political victory. Um, Woodrow Wilson's like, he called it the new freedom talk about a double speak name for stuff, the new freedom package, right? This is where your new freedoms, by the way, thanks to Woodrow Wilson, probably one of the worst presidents ever. Uh, your new freedom involved a creation of the federal reserve, the, the uh, creation of the IRS and the institution of an income tax, the creation of the federal trade commission, uh, new labor laws. That was the new freedom. <laughs> they knew marketing even back then. So that's the new freedom. And those arguments wouldn't have worked unless the culture was primed. No, those, those laws wouldn't have passed. You couldn't have passed those laws 100 years earlier. But after um, this slow ebbing of the tide into this collectivist ideology, anti-individualism, we need, we, got, we need an administrative state, someone needs to take care of these people. But once you get that going, then these arguments start to have a foothold in D.C., which is what happened. So now you get people standing up making arguments and the time is right. They can pass these laws, which just solidifies this as a, uh, a moral, as a moral good. It solidifies this as the right thing to do, right? Now it's a law. So many people conflate laws with morality. Now it's a law, right? Uh, and then of course, a few short later, years later, you get FDR's new deal, which is another 
you know, boat anchor on freedom, just dragging it down to the bottom of the ocean, price controls, the entire modern welfare state, like boom. So it doesn't take, it doesn't take long. Once the cultural tide starts to turn, once it starts to ebb away from individualism and towards collectivist ideology, which is exactly what the aristocracy needs because collectivism means, uh, you know, the individualism, you can abandon individualism. We're trying to worry about people as a collective for the public good. I can administrate for the public good. Why don't you hire me? Can you knight me and call me Lord? Right? Like that's, that's where they were trying to go. I mean, not, maybe not uh, <laughs> in the details, but that's where they wanted to go. And once that tide starts to shift towards collectivism, that's when these arguments take, take, uh, they get they get footholds, they get grips, and they get they get taken up by people. People believe them, they vote for people who do this, and here we are. So before I continue, one more super chat again from the generous Richard Patz, who says Thomas Crapper, the person who brought the flushing toilet system to the unwashed masses. Yes, yes, he was. Um, you sure it wasn't a government program? Um, okay. So, so that's, the, that's the history that I want you to understand of what happened and how we got here generally. I mean, it's not detailed, but it's a, you know, I don't think you want me to talk for eight hours and I don't want to. That's the, that's how we got here basically. So now the question is here you are building your Sam council. You're trying to stop the waves from coming in. You're loving the daily caller and the zingers that they're throwing at the liberals and woohoo. Right. I get it. That's awesome. Uh, or is it the Daily Wire? I don't remember. Whichever the good one is. Um, and uh, and now it's like, well, how do you how do you fight the war? And I would argue that if you care about liberty and individualism, um, you need to look back on that history. If you care about more than just you know getting your blood pressure raised by the internet and being able to go rove a flag and go rah rah, you get them. Uh, then learn from that history of the left. And the left actually has been explicit. They've learned from their own history. They kind of know what they've done. Um, and I'm not talking about the modern left. The modern left has nothing to offer except for their lived experience. I'm talking about the older left. But you can go back as recently as uh, the 60s. In the 1967, there's a relatively well-known uh, socialist activist, uh, friend of Marcusa, or associate at least of, of Marcusa. Yes, the famed repressive tolerance, Herbert Marcusa. Um, named Rudy Deutsch or Deutsch, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Um, looks German, <laughs> not to be, you know, <laughs> not to be a collectivist, but that's suspicious right on its face. Um, looks, he's a friend of or an associate of Marcusa, and he coins this term the long march through the institutions. Now, he was referencing uh, Mao's the, the protests or the supporters of, of Mao in China who did an actual long march. So he was a big fan of Mao and he was a big fan of Che Guevara. So that's the guy. And he talks about this long march through institutions. This is what he wanted to do. This was his plan. Now, it's a very succinct way of putting it. So he gets credit for that. But he's the caboose. The guys, it's like... <laughs> There's a party going on, and the last guy to show up was like, let's name it to this party. Like, that's nice, but you're at late, buddy. It's 1967. This has been going on for well over 100 years. 
The groundwork was laid generations before you. There has been a long march into institutions. You're at the finishing line in 1967. But anyway, he gets credit for succinctly describing this. So this is what happened. The left knew this is war, a war over ideas. They knew it was about taking over the institutions, not, not dismantling the institutions, owning the institutions. Um, they knew that this is a war over controlling the tide. By the way, I'm using the word left to mean collectivists generally right now. They knew this was going to be long. They knew it was going to be slow. They knew it was going to be generational. But um, just like a train, it takes a train a long time to get going. And at first, if you ever watch a train start from zero, especially a really long, heavy train, it it's super slow. It's like it's super slow. It takes forever because there's all that momentum. But once a train gets going, it's really hard to stop. Well, that's what the left did. They it's really hard to change culture. It's really hard to change our values as a culture. It's really hard to change our sentiment. Very, very hard. They just did it little by little by little. You didn't notice. They, you know, we like, oh, yeah, that's true. There are some poor people. I guess it's capitalism's fault, right? You just, you didn't notice. And, and you wake up one day and the train's going 80 miles an hour through your town and your kids are on the tracks. That's where we are. Now, when I say, look, uh, you want to fight the culture war most effectively. I know people want a silver bullet, which usually means a political thing. They want pithy comebacks on Twitter or like, here's the ultimate argument. Go share this and everything will be solved. They want me to tell you what the right candidate is. Go vote for this dude. He'll be your savior. Or they want like some plan. Here's an effective plan for the next Tea Party, which will actually do something this time and will sweep through D.C. miraculously and clean it up and drain the swamp. Woohoo! Those are all delusions. All of them are delusions. They're delusions because the tide's coming in, and those are not tidal moves. Tidal moves are slow and boring, seemingly boring. I don't think they actually can't. They are. They don't have to be. But they're slow, and they're not exciting at, at, on, on their face. Um, it's like losing weight, right? Like you can buy all the diet pills and fad stuff that you want, it doesn't work. You have to change your lifestyle and start eating better and exercising regularly. Like there's not a, that's, you have to do the hard work. There's not a, there's not another alternative. There's no magic thing. The same thing is true with changing our culture. There is no tweet that you can write or book that you can write or person you can vote for that will change the tide of this culture. There isn't, but there is a way to do it. Richard Pett says inertia. Yes, that's the word. I'm trying to, I was trying to avoid the physics word, but yeah. Momentum. I did use that word. That's a physics word. Um, the answer, like it or not, it's going to sound really trite and simple. The answer is kids. That's the answer. Kids. I know. I know. Now, now I can watch the stream drop. Everyone can leave. Uh, <laughs> The answer is children. Today's toddlers will be running things in 50 years. How they are raised matters more than anything else on the surface of the planet. That's what matters. That's what matters. How these kids are raised. And by the way, if you don't have any kids, it's hard to affect how they're raised, although you could. Um, 
kids. Kids are the way. Now, I'm not telling you that you're morally obligated to have children. Some people just really don't want them. That's fine. You can contribute to the culture war in other ways. You could work in education. That's a great way. <laughs> you could do that. You could work on products that make the lives of parents better, engaged good parents, you know. Uh, you could make a lot of money and throw it at people who are doing the actual work, right? Just pay people on the front lines, whatever. Um, so you don't have to have kids. But if you can, you should really, 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 really consider having children. Really. Um, and just to give you some context, because I know, uh, you know, I only started doing this online crap a couple years ago, a few years ago. That's forever ago. Seems like seems like yesterday. Um most of you who watch this show regularly view me as a dad because I've talked about being a dad. I enjoy being a dad. I look like this old, you know, <laughs> old Gen X dude with kids. I was not always this way. I never thought of myself. And by the way, I'm speaking specifically right now to if there happens to be any young people, especially young men, but young people in the audience right now, which I know not a huge demographic for this show, but look, I never thought of myself as wanting kids. Um, now maybe I look like a dad and act like a dad and tell stupid dad jokes and and whatever, but I didn't want kids. I was working at a, at a startup that I enjoyed, making great money. I was jet-setting around the world. I mean, I would fly. I flew to Paris to watch a play and for no other reason. Like, I, I had a great lifestyle. Uh... I was in an open relationship, busy trying to compensate for my unusually chaste <laughs> youth. Uh, in my free time, I was busy buying guns and playing in the desert. I was spending a lot of time at Gunsight in Arizona, if anyone's ever been there, back when, when Colonel Cooper was alive. Um, I was having a ball. I found children to be some combination of boring or annoying or burdensome. Definitely snotty. Uh, uninterested in children. And most of the people around me in my life at that time, by the way, uh, validated that. Now, granted, I'm living, I was, I was living in like literally in the city of San Francisco at the time. Uh, so most of the people around me were validating that. Even the parents, parents are always lamenting about their kids. It's like, it's kind of like, uh, it's like virtue signaling, except for it's like suffering signaling. It's, it's, uh, Oh, my kids are so hard. So there's always that kind of crap going on. Um, and, you know, the best kind of thing that I would get was, I remember one friend of mine, he was a cryptographer from Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And uh, the nicest thing that he said, I think probably the nicest thing anyone said about kids, which, which was, they're okay once they can do math. So that was my view of children. Vice signaling. Thank you, Greg. Vice signaling. That's a good... Okay, so, but here I am, 13 years after my oldest child was born, and I will say, hands down, children are the best thing I've ever done with my life. I have two of them. I wish I had more. Uh, having a kid is like having your heart walking around inside of another human being 24 hours a day. Sometimes it will make you profoundly sad. <laughs> Mostly it makes you way more joyful. Um if you are truly passionate about living, there is no, no better way to experience a life of passion than to be a parent, hands down. Uh, it turns out that none of that other shit I was doing mattered. 
uh, being a parent mattered. And plus, as a bonus from a cultural war perspective, an independent mind is the ultimate wef- weapon against the leftists. It is the ultimate weapon. Uh, they can't stop an independent mind. That's what they're afraid of. And uh, if you're watching this show, you're likely to be the kind of parent who's going to produce an independent mind. So uh, one more time, I'm going to put Richard Petz up. He says, toddlers' lives matter. Yes, they do. Actually, you know, as an aside, I I know it's kind of a joke or cliche, but uh, children are the last unprotected class. And I hate to view people in classes because I'm not a collectivist. I don't like to put people in groups. But, um, you know, if you watch how people are put in groups, uh, kids are – kids have the worst of it. Very, there's very little actual protection of children uh, that we seem to care about anymore, um, which is intentional because uh, the administrative state needs access to those kids. So, um, Beverly, of all people, who's not in chats today, I don't think, but Beverly, of all people, has been asking me to talk about parenting. I'm not going to go into a bunch of details about parenting. And frankly, I will admit some hesitancy uh, because my my oldest is 13. My kids aren't fully baked. I've certainly made mistakes in life and in parenting. <laughs> like, So it's always weird to be like giving parenting advice or saying anything about parenting because there's this fear that like, oh my God, what if they turn out to be an ax murderer? Everyone will be like, they won't listen to my advice. Um, maybe I'm wrong. But uh, I've gotten over that. Uh, I My daughter is a joy, and um, she's not going to turn out to be an axe murderer. And despite the mistakes that I may have made, I still have opinions about parenting, and I'm going to share them with you because uh, if, you wanna, if you want to raise children capable of surviving this, I mean, look, it's a... It's a it's a nuclear winter of values that's coming, right? And um, only the strong will survive. And we need someone to survive and come out the other side and rebuild society. Now, maybe we can cordon off some spot. I know New Hampshire thinks they can have a free state and cordon off some things. Texas probably wants to secede and whatever. But ultimately, we need the we need the people capable of doing it. Uh, you know, you watch some of those YouTube videos where they, I know they cherry pick, but watch some YouTube videos where someone goes out and they interview random college students on the street and they're dumber than a sack of rocks, right? They're not going to save us. If that's how you raise your kids, it's, <laughs> we're doomed, right? Um, and there's a lot more of those. I know they cherry pick, but there are, are quite a lot of them. Uh, I'd love to see a video where it wasn't cherry picked at all. They just let the camera roll and we got to see everyone that was spoken uh, to. But I'm going to give a little bit of very broad strokes my approach to trying to raise children. Uh, So, yeah, come on over. Come on over and listen. Greg says, what if it's far worse? What if she turns out to be woke? See, that's the thing. I'm not even scared of that a little bit anymore. I'm not, I'm not, there's no, I mean, I don't want to put her in harm's way, but give it your best shot, leftists. You have no chance. (laughs) So, all right. 
Um, let's talk about this. Let's talk about this this creation of a an independent mind. Uh, I'm gonna we're gonna break it into three sections. Again, broad strokes here. Uh, this isn't like a how to parent 101. You know, this is just broad strokes. Uh, and I'm gonna start in a place that maybe you don't expect. First, we're gonna talk about understanding the medium. And what I mean by that is the mind and psychology. Two, I'm gonna talk about choosing the right materials, which means a spouse. And three, I'm gonna talk about just broadly keeping your eye on the goal when you're when you're raising kids. And that will help you make decisions about the best way to parent. So understanding the medium. Really quickly, uh, here's what we know right now. Here's the state of the art on human psychology, as far as I'm under as I know. I don't think I'm that far behind. Um Many important traits have a high degree of heritability. People don't talk about it. There's lots of implications that will get us banned from YouTube for having this discussion, but everyone knows it. It's intuitive. IQ, high degree of heritability. Just does. Uh, the five-factor model personality traits, people refer to them as the big five. Openness, narcissism, agreeableness, conscientiousness, extroversion. High degree of heritability. So that's a starting point. There is a high degree of heritability in all this stuff. And by the way, um, I view, as I've said before, I think part of the assault here, I'm, I framed this, this war as a war on values and philosophy. There's, a, there's another side to this, which I've also talked about, which I'm not going to get into right now, which is that there's, a, um, there's two sides to this coin. One is psychological not just philosophical. So one way to view a lot of this war is just as, as, a, as mass psychological dysfunction. So psychology matters here. Um, high neuroticism, not a trait you want. So heredity matters. This means genetics are going to matter, right? I'm sorry, but genetics are going to matter. One of the reasons that adoption can be difficult is that genetics matter. It's still much better than the alternatives. And, you know, I'm not saying, you, I mean, I'm not saying don't adopt, but it can be challenging precisely because there's hereditary issues. Um, well, Richard Petz is going to say something. And hey, Richard, he says, I don't pretend to be an expert here, but I can say that Carter, from where I'm standing, makes a great parent. No investment in the future is more important. Just my two cents worth. Thank you, Richard. Um, we should pull my daughter in here. She's busy doing homework. Maybe she'll argue with you. I don't think, I think she's okay with me. Um, <laughs> we have a good relationship. Uh, by the way, dads, I'll say this for dads. Um, and I think the reverse is true for moms and that's a sad thing, but you know, for dads, the older they get, the, the closer you get. Um, it's cool. Anyway, so genetics are going to matter here. Now I've said that these things have a high degree of heritability. Heritability is not determinism. They're not the same thing. So these traits are spread out across genes. It's, there's not like a gene for being a leftist. These traits are spread out across genes there's not even a gene for neuroticism, right? They're spread out across a number of genes, and they're mitigated by transcription factors, which uh, which control the expression of genes. Transcription uh, transcription factors can be turned on and off based on uh, the the environment, and that means the environment that the proteins are in, basically. But that obviously is a function of both the internal chemistry. And it can be a function of the external world because the external world can affect internal chemistry. So the ex, like everything outside of the cell or the the um, the gene can control that uh, transcription factor, whether it whether that gene gets turned on or turned off. 
So um, the environment matters as well. It's not just hereditary. It's not just determinism. So both of those things matter. Um, and from also from what I can tell, I wouldn't worry too much about things like IQ uh, to a point. I mean, I don't think you want to have children with someone who's functionally retarded. But look, I mean, we don't know much about implanting positive traits like raising IQ, um, having a better a mix of your five-factor model traits. I, from what I understand, we don't really know a lot about how to do that, but we do know a lot about how to ruin children. So um, it's unfortunate, but a lot of the studies, there's a whole adverse childhood experience score. You can look it up and, and learn about that. We know lots of ways to lower IQ, everything from malnutrition to beating your children, like lots of ways to lower IQ. Um, there's lots of ways to cause psychological damage. We don't really know a lot about <laughs> doing good there. So rule one is maybe don't screw it up. Uh, pick someone with good genes. Don't screw it up. Uh, that's rule number one. Yes, tree surgeon, the technical term is epigenetics. I'm trying to avoid too much of the technical terms, but yes. <clears throat> okay, so that's that's the medium that we're working with. We're working this with this being that has a high degree of hereditability and these traits that matter to us. Um, and also the environment matters a great deal. Okay, there we are. Now, this brings us to choosing the right materials to work with. And by that, I mean spouse. Now, I'm going to make an assumption here right from the beginning. I'm going to assume that you, if you want children, you're looking for a long-term partner, I guess, or partners if you're more evolved than I am. But okay, uh, not that you're not into single parenting. We're not looking for single parents. We're not having a single parenting discussion. That's a stupid idea. Uh, Murphy Brown was wrong. Data suggests that's a bad idea. It is a bad idea. <laughs> Just don't do that. So, um, so we're assuming that you're looking for a long-term partner. Now, um, Richard Petz also now says curiosity is a positive trait, has a positive feedback. One that promotes thinking. Yes, curiosity is positive. Um, it's not one of the five-factor models, but it is. Uh, it's probably related to openness, I would guess. Okay. So we've talked about what matters. So we were talking about choosing a spouse now. Genetics matter, <laughs> clearly. Um, but uh, there's, not, there's not a lot you can do with genetics. I mean, to determine genetics. Um, the Biologically, you'll probably, your attraction might be partly a genetic filter. Like your, your just visceral attraction to someone may be partly based on genetics or epigenetics. Um, just one thing to keep in mind here, your genes, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to anthropomorphize genes for a moment. They're not actual sentient beings with free will. Your genes don't care if you have a happy life and wonderful kids that are anti-woke. Your genes don't care. They just want copies of themselves. Um, 
This idea is captured in, actually, before genetics was even discovered or known, 19th century novelist uh, Samuel Butler has this famous aphorism. He says, a chicken is an egg's way of making another egg. <laughs> like, genes just, they just want copies of themselves. They just, they just evolved to copy themselves. So what that means in terms of spousal selection is the bettable hot chick with borderline personality disorder is a bad idea. You, your genes might be excited. There might be a lot of chemical activity going on. Someone should have warned Johnny Depp. Like, that's a bad one. That's a bad one. Stay away from that. So don't place too much emphasis on that. Obviously, you need to be attracted to the person. But um, I have found that the crazy hot scale is often more true than I wish it were. So... Buyer beware. And it really can ruin your, your rational decision-making. By the way, I wrote a stupid little, I, I'll call it a micro story about uh, <laughs> living with someone with uh, borderline personality disorder. I think it's on our Substack and on our website. If you, It's called Borderline. Uh, and it takes literally like 60 seconds to read. It's super short. Um, but stay away from that stuff. Okay. But the but when you're picking a spouse, the environment matters. And I'll say not just to your kids. I mean, in some sense, you're picking the mother or father of your child. That's the decision you're trying to make here. But it also you're picking someone that you've got to live with. <laughs> so it matters to both of you what environment is is <laughs> produced here. You're shopping for both your own long-term partner and the parent of your children. So you need stability in this person, uh, which is why personality disorders are just steer clear. Um, and you need harmony. And what I mean by that is like value alignment. Um, you especially need that when it comes to child rearing. Now, there seems to be sometimes this debate whether or not shared philosophy matters. And people sometimes like to cite, I think this is a funny example. People sometimes like to say, well, James Carville and his wife, no one knows her name, but her name is Mary Matalin, not Magdalene, Mary Matalin. Uh, James Carville has been married to Mary Matalyne for years, and he's a Democrat and she's a Republican. Oh, my goodness. Uh, by the way, I think she recently became a libertarian, um, but she's an anti-Trumper. That's not... That's I'm, so, I'm sorry, people whose lives revolve around politics. Uh, I'm not even sure that's not shared values. I mean, they're both members of the Uniparty. One worked for Clinton and the other Bush and Reagan. Like, I get that there's differences between Clinton and Bush, but come on. This is not, you know, this isn't someone who's like a staunch libertarian marrying Bernie Sanders. Like, that doesn't, it's not, and I don't know, I don't know how well their kids are or what, if they have kids. So I, I, don't, I don't know too much about the relationship. That's, it doesn't actually work. It doesn't work. If you're willing to choose someone with discordant values to raise your children, that's a sign that either you don't take values seriously, right? That your alleged values are decorations, not actual values. I mean, Ayn Rand once said, a value is that which you act to gain and keep. It's not what you say it is. It's not what you write on match.com. It's, it's what you act to gain and keep. So if your act is to disregard values in your spousal partner selection, 
it's not a value. Those aren't your values. Um, so I'm not, if that's you, I'm not going to encourage you to have any kids. You can skip the rest of this. Um, so either you don't take values seriously or you don't take relationships seriously. You're looking for a fling, not the parent of your children. And uh, that's fine if you want to have a fling, but know what you're doing. You're not looking for the parent of your children. Um, a Fight Naked says, they are political establishment cronies both. Right. They're the Uniparty. But I hear that all the time. Well, these two are totally at the opposite ends of the spectrum. I'm like, yeah, at the spectrum, that's the wrong spectrum. That's way over here. That's at, like that entire spectrum is at the other end of my spectrum. Um, so uh, it's also politics, which is different than philosophies, which we'll we'll get into a little bit. But if you want to impart your values to your children, um, you can't be constantly battling with your spouse about what those values are on a fundamental level. You can have minor disagreements about implementation and stuff, but you can't be like, you know, should they go to church or not? That's not a battle you should have. <laughs> like you can't, you can't, you can't have a, a Muslim and a Christian get married and not have that battle over your children, which means if that's, if you two are getting married, neither one of you takes it that seriously. That's, that's just the truth. Um, and I, I don't care that it hurts. So other times people will say, well, that's boring. You don't want to marry someone just like you. Uh, look, I, Nathaniel Brandon has this concept of basic similarities and complementary differences. I don't think they should be just like you. I'm talking at a, at, I'm talking about metaphysics, epistemology, and basic ethics. They don't even have to have the same politics necessarily. Right, like, but those they have to have the same base values, um, and after that, actually, differences are great. They can keep things alive and and keep things exciting. Um, so I would say that the two requirements for actual psychological adulthood, which I I view as a prerequisite to responsible parenting, um, one requirement is you have to consciously have chosen your philosophy. Um. And, and it's simple. Um, I harp on that a lot. Very few people have consciously chosen their philosophy. In fact, it's assumed generally that people haven't. I was, I, I did this, um, there's this book called Designing Your Life from, I don't know, some Stanford people. Uh, and, and there's a course, there's a Designing Your Life course at Stanford. And, um, and it's a very popular course. Uh, the book is interesting and this book has a workshop in it and, and early in, in the worksheet stuff, there's, um, there are these exercises and they ask you to articulate your, what they call your work view, which is like what you think the purpose of work is and blah, blah, blah. And then after that, they ask you to articulate your life view, which basically is, is what they mean by kind of philosophy. Um, and I, I remember doing it and I remember when I got to the life view part, you know, the work view part was a little bit, I had to like think about what I really want about out of work and what's important to me. Uh, the life view part, I zipped through because it was, this is like, I consciously chose my philosophy 20 years ago. It, some has changed, but like the fundamentals haven't changed. And I know why I've argued it for decades now. Like I, I'm pretty comfortable, willing to change if, if I need to and, and have in a few certain areas, but that was easy. So I just really quickly wrote down, like, 
metaphysics, epistemology, like I went aesthetics. So I just went down. Actually, I don't know if I did aesthetics, metaphysics, epistemology, ethics. Uh, I probably threw in, I don't know, a couple other things. That's my life view. And it was an easy sum. And then the, I remember the, the, the question after that on this worksheet was um, about integrating the two. Oh, what conflicts are there? There's definitely going to be some conflicts in there. Don't you see the conflicts? Try and work out the conflicts so that they're integrated. Now, integrating them is a great idea. They should be integrated. But I remember looking at that question going, wow, what an assumption you're making. Um, there weren't any conflicts in mind because everything I was writing while writing the work view was filtered through a consciously chosen philosophy. Like, it wasn't new to me that I was coming up with my life view. So... I wasn't writing things about my work life that were out of sync with my life view, but most people do. The fact that they have to include that, they have to make it a big exercise, is a lot of people write both of those things and then they turn around and go, oh, there's a conflict. Yeah, because you haven't been thinking about your life philosophy. You haven't consciously chosen your values. You haven't thought them through. So do that before you have kids. And if you don't know what your values are and why, or if they're brand new, and they're not tested in the crucible of life. It takes a little while. Um, I made some bad decisions early uh, when my values were new because I wasn't, you know, they were just, I didn't really even know how to apply them or, or what, um, you know, I hadn't, uh, didn't have as much nuance. Like if you don't know what they are or if they're new, it's basically impossible to find a partner with shared values because they're too new. So you got to know what they are and you got to get settled in them. So um, my heuristic rule that I kind of developed um, over time, which was to emphasize metaphysics and epistemology in terms of shared values um, and worry less. I mean, ethics matters if they're like really off the ethical scale, but even ethics is not 100% required to be in alignment if, if metaphysics and epistemology are in alignment. And the reason for that is um, metaphysics is the map and epistemology is the direction you're going. And so if you both have the same map and you're both going in the same direction, you will meet at the horizon. <laughs> like you will move closer to each other on all the other issues. So, um, but even if you have the exact same ethics, if you've got different metaphysics and epistemology, you will separate over time. So you want someone you're going to move closer. Your values are going to get more shared and closer over time. Anyway, so that's one thing. You should have your, this one requirement. You should have your, your philosophy consciously chosen. I've probably done several shows about that, so you can, if you want more, go watch them. Um, the other thing that you should do is you should learn about partner selection. And I got to say, this is hard. There is a, first of all, most parents don't teach it. Um, my parents didn't. Uh, and not, not through any fault of their own. I think they just didn't think about it. They probably weren't taught about it. Very few parents sit down and say, this is what you need to look for in a spouse. These are the pitfalls. This is what it's like to be married. These are the things that go wrong. This is what you really need to care about. This is the, the red flags you have to worry about when you're dating. And this is when you should run screaming. And this is when you consider it. Like no one, almost no one has that conversation. Um, and the weird thing is if you look for books on this, there is a dearth of material. It's kind of like uh, how the healthcare system has been for a while, which is like, if you have a disease, there's 15 million medications for it, but no one is talking about preventing the disease. So if you want a book about how to save your marriage, there's pages and pages and pages of Amazon books about relationships gone wrong and how to save your marriage and this and that and the other thing. There's like one or two. There's nothing about like, how do you find a partner? <laughs> 
No one writes about it. No one talks about it. Um, so there's just there's just not many, not no one, but there's very few books. So uh, I would say, what do you do in that case? Um, well, I think you could read about love, like what the nature of love is. Um, not poetically, not like not romantic, like, I mean, romantic love, but not, you know, you, you don't need to read Walt Whitman. I mean, um, read about the psychology of love. Um, Nathaniel Brandon has a book, a good book called the psychology of romantic love, which is interesting. Other people have studied it and looked at it. So I would, you know, read that. Um, I would, I would read some of the, even before you're married, I would read some of the books about, um, marriage difficulties. And there's a crap ton of those and i would read them from uh various sources like from different angles so i would read uh the lefties i would read christians i would read both because they're going to disagree with each other and they're going to have completely different premises for how they approach the stuff but both are likely to have some truth in them about things they've observed and what happens and they may maybe some of their remedies you might not agree with depending um, but I would read someone like Esther Perel, who I know a lot of uh, people on the right really don't like, but she's very insightful. And even if you don't agree with some of her conclusions, I would read someone like John Gottman, who is, I think he's a Christian. He's got a book called Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. Um, maybe he's not a Christian, but uh, the only book, by the way, I've seen by about picking a spouse, Go Christians, is by a Christian named Dan Churn. It's called How to Pick a Spouse. Uh, so I would I would read a lot of that stuff and try and get an understanding of what you're looking for in terms of a partner. And I know it feels not romantic to do that. You have this Disney version of like, you're going to find the girl or guy and they'll be, you know, you'll fall in love, love at first sight, and then you'll stay together forever and everything will be hunky dory. Um, the problem with that is it's based on a myth, which is the myth is that your biology, um, that your biological response is automatically uh, commensurate with your life values and needs. Now, I know Ayn Rand would argue that there is a correlation between those two, and I guess there could, there can be, of course, um, but it's not a one-to-one -one correlation. It's not that easy. Um, and so you can easily, easily fall for someone. There's that period when you first fall for someone called limerence, where um, your oxytocin levels are very high. Uh, this is these are this is your DNA. This, these are your genes wanting you to reproduce. They don't give a crap about whether this person is a crazy psychopath that will take half your stuff later. They don't care. Your genes are just like, yeah, I like this. Um, and so, uh, at least know have have a have a theory about what you're looking for know what the pitfalls are and have some, I would write down, have some things that you want out of a spouse uh, that aren't sexy and hot and blah, blah, like some stuff that's real, that's value related, what you want. And then of course you do need to have, uh, the sparks do need to fly or else you'll just be miserable. You can't, you know, you can't marry someone that you don't, <laughs> you're not excited about. Richard Pets again with the super chat says from a builder's perspective, we can agree to disagree on the style of the house. However, we agree on the principles that building requires. Yeah, I think he's talking about um, my epistemology and metaphysics example. Yes. Yeah. 
Uh, okay, so that's the second thing. So there's this like, um, know the medium, understand the medium, understand what you're trying to build. This is how humans work uh, psychologically. Choose the right materials, choose your spouse. And now we're going to get into the fun stuff. Okay, now you've got a kid. You chose your spouse. You've got a kid. Now you need to keep your eye on the goal here with respect to parenting. How do you make sure that your kid doesn't succumb to this miasma of, of the broader environment? This, this, uh, you know, you can't ex you can't avoid exposure to this. It's everywhere. So how do you make sure she doesn't come home from college with, uh, you know, a double mastectomy and pink hair and metal bits in her face? Right? How do you do it? So the goal, and I'm I'm going to be very clear. I'm speaking only from a rational ethics perspective, and a set of arbitrary ethics do require force in their very nature. So, and I'm not in support of those ethics either. I'm not going to talk about how to parent by any arbitrary set of values. I'm talking about rational ethics. The goal here is you want independent, uh, resilient, rational thinkers. You want them to have a visceral understanding of individual rights. You want them to have the intestinal fortitude to stand up and resist evil. Um, you want them to have the foresight to prioritize their own long-term happiness. Those are all things. I mean, that's just, there's probably others, but like th that's kind of the, what you want to raise. Um, notice resilient is the opposite of <laughs> Uh, safe in some respects, right? They, they need to they have strength. So the first rule here is I'm just going to go through, this is a non-exhaustive set of guidelines. And I'll just start by saying, before I even get into the first one, the first rule is they will learn by what you do way more than by anything you say. You can lecture about your ethical system until the cows come home. It is irrelevant. How you behave will matter. So... All right. Tree Surgeon says, or anti-fragile. Yeah, anti-fragile is great. Tree Surgeon also asks what the role of children is in objectivism. This is a, um, I don't want to get into this really deeply because it's a good, it's sort of a sort of a good question. Um, the, uh, But I am going to say there is a false dichotomy floating around, which is that reason and emotion are, um, can't coexist. Uh, that they're like two different things. They're two opposites. Um, they are, they're two different tools and using one for the purpose of the other one is fail. It's a fail. So reason's the only way you can guarantee reality correspondence to your idea with your ideas. Your, your conceptual hierarchy needs to correspond to reality. All you got is reason for that. Emotion will not help you, but emotion is the motivation. Emotion is the only reason you do anything. You can't get out of bed without emotion. Emotion is the reason that you do anything. If you'll notice, my argument for children was largely emotional. It will make you feel great. That matters because emotion is your, your raison d'etre. It's your reason for, like, you're not a robot. And it's, it's, it's irrational to pretend that you're a robot, that you will be happy going through life with, with numb and having no emotions. That's not what life's about. You're a human being with emotions. You just can't use them as arguments. They're not reasons for things. That's all. That's all. They're just not reasons. They're a separate thing. They're called emotions. They're your motivation. So, okay. Let's go through this non-exhaustive list of guidelines. These are just kind of, I just jotted some down off the top of my head today. All right. The first guideline I'm going to say is going to sound a little bit condescending, but some people need to hear it. So 
children are humans. They're not pets. Um, unless they're Richard's children, in which case they are Richard's pets, children. Um, uh, humans aren't pets. Uh, and, and it's amazing to me, and some, some people might find this insulting, but so be it. It's amazing to me how many people on the right will yell and scream about, and, and by the way, I, I don't disagree necessarily with it, but they'll yell and scream about, uh, abortion and they'll say, it's human, it's a human, it's a human, it's a human. And then the minute they're born, they train it like a puppy. They spank it when it's disobedient. I do even maybe people don't even spank puppies. I don't know. I imagine people don't even like when you hit puppies, but they'll hit the kid. They don't treat it like a human. They treat it like an animal. Kids aren't animals. And by the way, I have two kids of my own. They're Rottweilers. No, you don't. Those aren't animals also aren't children. You have a sad, sad life if you think that's the same thing. Um, so uh, you can have great have dogs if you like them, but they're not kids. Um, all right. Hitting children. I look hitting children, including for discipline. So a lot of times I'll talk about hitting children and people will say, well, that's, I don't mean just whacking them. I mean, very carefully bad. I'm just spacking. I'm spanking them to teach them a lesson. I'm doing it very carefully. <laughs> First of all, it's completely ineffectual. You are living in a world of delusion. Every study that's been done has demonstrated it, they quickly return to their bad behavior. There is no lasting positive effect. They don't learn that way. So you're just a sadist trying to justify your sadism. They don't learn that way. You're just wrong. It doesn't work. Well, my dad spanked me. Great. That's good. He didn't know, first of all. Second of all, uh, your dad probably did lots of things. You, it doesn't mean that those are the things that led you to be whatever great traits you think you have today. <clears throat> so it's ineffectual. It's also counterproductive. It's more than ineffectual. It's counterproductive. And I mean morally counterproductive. It's teaching an immoral lesson. And that lesson, remember what I said, what you do matters, not what you say. That lesson is might makes right. That is the fundamental lesson being learned. It is you do something I don't like, I hit you. That's the lesson. What do you think happens when they become bigger than you? What do you think they think is appropriate when they're grown up? Why do you think they turn to a police state? He broke the law. Someone needs to whack him. That's where that comes from. Might makes right is immoral. Stop teaching it. And by the way, for the Christians in the audience, spare the rod does not mean what you think it does. This, you're reading an English translation. Uh, go investigate spare the rod and the history of it and the etymology of it. Go look up in a, in a concordance. I don't base my ethics off the Bible, but I know you do. It doesn't, it doesn't say you got to whack your kids. All right. I used to make this argument and people used to say to me, you just don't understand what it's like to be a parent. You wait and see. All right, I've done that. Now I get to call you out. Um, so uh, I want to also, there a couple counter arguments I want to address because this is a big one. I, I can't believe that this is a big one, but it is. Uh, 
there's another dishonest argument that I, I would like to call out, which is people will say, what if they run into traffic? You're just you're just going to let them run into traffic because you don't want to initiate the use of force against kids. It, it's completely it's a completely dishonest argument. It, the pretense is that you can't distinguish between using force when necessary to keep them safe and to keep them from harming themselves and like yanking them out of traffic or grabbing a dangerous item out of, out of their hand. The, the, the pretense here is I can't distinguish between that and spanking him because he didn't eat his spinach or he stole a toy. If you can't distinguish between those two things, your IQ is too low to have a child. Do not have a child. Another dishonest argument here is the conflation of discipline with hitting. This one I've been getting a lot lately. It's usually framed in some kind of false dichotomy like this. You either spank them to teach them a lesson in life. Now, I've already told you that's a lie. It doesn't work, but whatever. This is the one side of the coin. You either do that or you have no boundaries. You use no discipline. You're a hippie mom who's concerned about being friends with her five-year-old and not parenting her. Those are the options. Guess we better hit them. Those aren't the only options. Both of those things are bad parenting. Don't do those things. All right. One more from Richard Petz. He says, I vote down the stick. The only thing that works then is then the carrot. Reward works, punishment punishes, zero-sum game. So I'm going to talk about how I... What kind of what negative discipline looks like to me? So if your rules are reality based, in other words, if you're dealing with a rational ethical system, then much of the discipline that you have to dish out can be morphed into exposing children to the consequences of their actions, which would otherwise be hidden to them. They don't understand the long term consequences, but you should. The reason you have the rules should be that there's long term negative consequences because they're rational rules. So. The discipline that uh, remains, if you're not doing that, can be consequential and non nonviolent. Um, I told you to clean your room before I would take you to the barn to do your riding lessons. Not that this has ever happened. Uh, I, told, I told you to, you had to clean your room before I'm going to drive you to the barn for your riding lessons. You didn't clean your room. Ergo, you have no ride to the barn. Right? Um, they, they need you... They rely on you, right? Kids rely on you. So you do have a say in what you're willing to participate in. You don't have to do whatever they want, right? Now, of course, uh, the less they need you, the less you have a say in it. It's called growing up. Um, but there can be a negotiation there. Well, you want this thing from me. You know, I, I'm not going to deny you food and shelter, but there's a lot of stuff that I'm willing to deny you. <laughs> like this is a negotiation. Like there's a, there's a house we live in and there's some give and take. You need to learn to do that. Um, <clears throat> disagreements can also be um, <clears throat> negotiations with consequences for when they cheat because kids will make agreements and cheat on the agreements because they're testing. They're testing whether they can do that. So um, I've given this example before, but I'll give it again. Uh, my daughter, I'll probably give two examples uh, tonight about brushing teeth. My daughter did not like to brush her teeth when she was young. Um, and uh, I remember one time I, she wanted me to read her another story. And I said, you know, I'll read you another story if, what do you think I said? If you brush your teeth without complaining, blah, blah, blah afterwards. Okay. So, um, and of course, 
you know, she's a kid, right? So she's just like, she didn't hear anything after her. <laughs> I'll read you another story. And like, if, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, yeah, woo, another story. Yes. Um, so I read her another story. And um, what do you think she did? I said, okay, it's time to brush your teeth. I don't want to. She didn't want to brush her teeth. Okay. So at this point, I could get angry because she promised, but the, she's a kid. She's testing boundaries. She may or may not even understand. Um, even if she does understand, my job is to parent her. I'm not trying to get angry. So, uh, okay. She doesn't want to brush her teeth. Well, what can I do? Well, I can show her what the consequences of this decision are. And what I mean by that is the consequences of breaking promises, because she made a promise to me. I might have used the word promise intentionally because that's a strong word. She made a promise to me. So all I had to do was say, oh, well, I just had to universalize it. Oh, oh, I see. You want to live in a household where we don't keep promises. That's fine. The next time I promise to do, and I just started listing things. Next time, next time I promise to get you ice cream, I'll break it. Next time I promise to do this, I'll just, I'll just, I won't do it if I don't want to. I can live in a house where I don't keep my promises to you. Is that what you want? Um, you know, and her eyes were like, they got super wide and she looked at me and she like picked up her toothbrush and started brushing her teeth. She didn't want to live. Like all I had to do was lay out like, this is what it's like to live in a world where we don't keep promises with each other. Here's the negative consequences. And of course, at this point, she's too young to like have counter arguments, right? Um, I'm just connecting it to reality. For, I'm just connecting it to the consequences. Like, look, because this is this is part of being responsible. You make a promise, you keep it. All right, maybe she'll be careful about not making that promise in the future. Or she'll just go brush her teeth and fulfill it. Um, you know, I'll say another, there's, there's another brushing teeth story actually about um, demonstrating consequences. This one, I think she was uh, a little old. Oh, she was a little older. She had, she had gotten better about brushing her teeth and then, and then fell off the wagon. And uh, I, again, got to brush her teeth. Why do I have, this is, it was a, a why, this is a great, I love the why questions because uh, they challenge me if I don't have a good reason. But you know what? I do have a good reason for brushing your teeth. <laughs> so why? Oh, that's an interesting question. You want to know why we brush our teeth? <clears throat> now, someone will argue you don't need to do this if you only eat meat or whatever, but you know. She had had carbs in her life at that point and sugar once in a while, not a lot. Um, said, oh, you uh, you want to know why? <laughs> now, by the way, this is parenting in the 21st century. Yeah, you couldn't get away with this 100 years ago, but oh, that's easy. I went to Google Images and I found pictures of rotted teeth. And I showed her, this is why. This is what happens if you don't brush your teeth. Now, that might have been too much because I think it scarred her. <laughs> she was like, I'm brushing my teeth. There's a reason. There's a reason why. And the point is not to win that particular battle. If I had lost that battle and she had opted out of brushing teeth that night, um, that would have been better than forcing her to do it because um, I should be able to win that argument, right? And if I can't, that's my problem. I got to go circle my wagons and come up with a better argument. Um. Richard Petz again, he, man, he is on fire tonight. Richard Petz again says, uh, failure equals connection with reality equals consequences equals opportunity equals growth. Excellent equation, uh, Richard. Yes. 
Um, and one more thing I'm going to say with respect to kids aren't animals. Uh, this is all apparently under the kids aren't animals uh, <laughs> heading. Kids aren't pets. Uh, one more related thing I will say is respect their boundaries. So, and this is a habit that I get into early on. I didn't, you know, our, our youngest is just about one. And uh, from from day one with, with her and with my 13-year-old, um, from day one, whenever we were doing anything, you manipulate babies a lot. You got to pick them up, change their clothes, change their diaper. But there's lots of baby manipulation that happens. And obviously, you can't ask for their permission. <laughs> like, they're a baby. You can't. You need to do the thing. They don't even understand what's going on. Um, but what I did do was I would explain I'm going to take your left sleeve off. Now I'm taking your right sleeve off. Now I'm putting this on. Da, 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 da. I'm going to open your diaper. She doesn't, she had no idea what I'm talking about, but it's this habit of respecting her and her, her body and her autonomy. Me like this. Yes, I'm manipulating you. I'm telling you it's not, it's not just happening out of the blue. I'm not treating you like an object. I'm telling you, these are the things that we need to do for you. Um, here's your onesie, right? Um, where this becomes uh, an issue for a lot of people is with hugs and kisses. As soon as they're old enough to express preference, uh, their preference needs to control, not Aunt Betsy's desire to give them a big old kiss. Uh, their body is their own. It's not yours. It's not their relatives. It's not Aunt Betsy's. They should never be pressured into physicality ever. Um, and if you're too much of a pussy to stand up to Aunt Betsy, maybe consider don't having kids, don't have kids. Uh, this is, I think this is hugely important because it's part of building. When we talked about that fortitude to stand up to others, part of that is seeing that the parents are, are willing to take their side and stand up for their preferences, right? They don't owe Aunt Betsy, Betsy a hug and kiss. You can, uh, <laughs> I guess she could cajole you and be like, I'll give you a cookie if you give me a kiss. Uh, at least it's a choice, right? But you you, you can't put that pressure. You can't pressure them to do it. You got to let them make up their own mind. Um, you can, of course, have conversations. It makes Aunt Betsy sad when you don't, but you do it later. You don't do it in the moment. You don't pressure in the moment. Um, and you don't and you don't even pressure during that conversation. You maybe just be curious. Why didn't you want to? Oh, she does. She smells. Okay. Tell Aunt Betsy to brush her teeth for beforehand or whatever. Um, or she scared me when she was loud and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Well, you know, Aunt Betsy needs to know that. Um, oh, geez, <laughs> we have, we have a, uh, spam bot in chat. I think someone deleted someone, some, there's a, someone has some mod is here, but, uh, I will, um, I'm going to ban this person. Okay. Second guideline here, they're not all this long, don't worry. Second guideline here is to be curious about what kind of human they're going to be, what they're developing into, and give them opportunities to exert their free will. So this can be just turning things that don't seem like a choice into choices. Again, you can do this super early on. With my, my oldest daughter, when she was a baby, I, this sounds ridiculous, but it's kind of become a thing in our house and like, there's no reason to not do it. Um, I, <laughs> I like would hold up two different onesies and whichever one she randomly like touched, that was the one, I, which one do you want? She had no idea what she was doing, but um, just giving her a sense of agency, like 
what do you want to, which one do you want? What do you want? Do you want? It's, again, it's a habit. It's more building a habit than anything else. Um, but that kind of, but you can, you can also give choices. Like those choices can become, do you want this for dinner or that for dinner? Now, obviously there's an infinite amount of things you could have for dinner, but you can offer two choices and they will feel like, oh, they, or maybe not every night, maybe on Wednesdays they get to choose or whatever, but they, they feel like they have some agency that they get a say in what's going on in their life when really you're limiting very severely what, what choices they can make. And that false limiting of choices, I mean, it works, I mean, it works all the way into the preteens usually. I mean, eventually it falls apart as it should because eventually they're like, hey, there's a world of choices. <laughs> Fine. You got to stop using it at that point. Um, you can also turn, when they get older, you can turn choices into negotiations. Um, I'd like you to do this. You'd like to do that. Here are my reasons. I'm going to make an argument. You negotiate with kids. Um, this requires, though, having good reasons for what you want. Um, and if, you, like I said earlier with the brush and teeth, if you don't have good reasons, if they win the argument legitimately, you need to concede. If you're lucky, maybe you can get away with postponing and like, oh, we talk about this later. Like, you, maybe you can do that. But you got to concede. When you lose, you got to concede. You have to show them that reason wins, not your will. You're not the dictator. You're the guide. And reason wins. And if they if they beat you in an argument, you must concede. It's just a battle. You're not losing the war. You go lick your wounds and figure out why the hell you lost an argument to a kid. That's your problem. <laughs> but you got to concede. Otherwise, you're showing disregard for reason. You're showing that it doesn't that the argument doesn't matter. Something else matters. Your will matters. Your emotions about it matter. Obviously, if they're asking you to do something you don't want to do, a good argument is like, I don't feel like it. Like, but um, All right, third guidance here. Don't evaluate for them like CNN evaluates for you. You all hate it when, when Don Lemon is like, this is a good thing. Just report the freaking news. Stop telling me what it means. Um, the most common thing here I see, especially with parents and young kids, is they use a lot of good jobs. Good job. Well done. Blah, blah, blah. I know that they mean well. Um, uh, I think it is a, it invites them to replace their own judgment with yours. You, and you are projecting. Typically, they're actually not looking for your value judgment. You think they are because you're projecting. Because you imagine if you made a stupid stick figure painting, you would want someone to tell you it's beautiful and it's perfect and what a good job it was. That's not what they're looking for typically. What they're looking for is um, a mirror. They want to know what's going, they want to see that their perception is, because they're, they're figuring out that reality is objective. Do you see what I see? Is, is, am I correct in my analysis of this? That's what they're looking for. So, you know, taking the kid's drawing as an example, replace good job with descriptive language. It can be neutrally descriptive, um, which is preferable. Like, oh, you used a lot of purple in this one. And you'll be surprised. You think that's a stupid, mundane, like benign statement. You use a lot of purple in this one. You'll you'll see they'll light up. They'll be like, "Yeah, I did. Oh, I did." They're just as happy as if you had, you know, given them an Oscar, right? Like they, they like 
That's what they want. Oh, you see what I tried to do? I tried to use a lot of purple. I did use a lot of purple. He saw the purple, right? Um, or, you know, as they get older, like, oh, you can say your ability to, to draw faces is improving. You used to you used to do this, and now you're doing that. That's an improvement, right? So you can be a mirror. You can be a kind mirror. You can be mean. You should be, a, but a, be a kind mirror. Like let them see that what that their perception matches your perception of reality, right? And giving them a value judgment doesn't help. It doesn't, and also like it sets them up for failure because. If you're always like, your paintings are great, your paintings are great, and then they you know, like, submit the painting to the school uh, contest and lose because it sucks. They're just like, they don't know what to trust your perception anymore or whatever. Like, just, I mean, eventually they reach an age where you can be both positively and negatively valuing their things, right? You can say, hmm. I don't really like that thing that you did there. Or I really do like, like, eventually they reach that age, but not when they're younger. Um. And you can do the same thing. I mean, this is this is dangerous because we are all going to want to do this. You can do the same kind of thing by saying things like, you know, that AOC is so stupid, <laughs> right? Like, eventually you can say that if that's kind of been decided as a house, <laughs> right? But um, when you just start out with derisive, dismissive language about even about bad people um, rather than factual statements – you're trying you're you're kind of inviting them to agree with you in a way that you shouldn't um so what i've tried to do with even with stuff like aoc which now i can just say she's stupid um but was like this is what she said hey i read the news and this here's this person this is this person this is what she's she's a congresswoman blah 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 this is what she said and 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 i might even be like this is what bothers me but i i could say that um but often it's better to just be like, what do you think about this? And again, this is for a little bit older kids. But you can say, what do you think about this? And if you think that their analysis is lacking, which it very well may be, you can play the why game or the, the what game. You can be like, well, what do you think this word means? What do you think she means by that word? What do you think that means? Like you can get into really deep philosophical discussions with one simple statement from AOC. Um, and you don't ever really have to be, um, they're going to know your values, but you don't ever have to be really foisting your opinion on your analysis of AOC on her, her or him. You just need to be walking them through a thought process and be like, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And like, you can, you can see whether they're going to arrive there themselves or whether they get stuck on a point. And they might just be like, I don't know. I don't know about that. I need to think about it. Like, that's fine. Um, you know, one concern of mine, you know, one concern of mine here you, is you want to leave room for them to disagree. And I'm sometimes concerned that I haven't. I've tried to. Um, but I'm sometimes concerned that there's too much agreement happening. And um, I'm constantly, I'm constantly pushing my daughter to like, engage her grandparents are like one set of grandparents is completely lefty. Uh, I'm constantly encouraging her to like ask grandma and grandpa about it. What, take what they say seriously. Think like, think about what they're saying. Maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. Have you considered it? Why don't you think about this? Take your arguments that teachers are saying seriously, take them seriously. Don't just assume they're wrong. 
Maybe that, maybe I'm wrong. And like, you can have a conversation about that because frankly, if I'm wrong, I want to know. So if she's able to go figure out why I'm wrong from something AOC said and bring it back to the dinner table and show that I'm wrong and I can't uh, help her unpack it anymore to change her mind about it, then I should change my mind. Apparently AOC is right. So it's not a, it's, but again, I'm, you, you need to be more like Socrates. You're not debating. You're trying to draw it out of them. Um, Richard Petz says, again with again with the super chats, Richard, he's going to fund my daughter's education. Well, she's not going to go to college probably. Maybe, maybe she will. I mean, she could. She just, I don't. It's so tempting to just not send her to college. Uh, evaluation of quality begins with self-criticism. Is this the best I can do? This leads to honesty for both oneself and to others. This is love. Right. Right. All right. Um, all right. Another general principle, don't lie. This is an obvious one. Uh, you can say things like, if you're trying to hide something, like if she asks you about something you're uncomfortable with, you can say, like, it's inappropriate. I don't want to talk about it. It's my private business. That's fine. You don't have to lie. Um, people don't like this, but I didn't even lie about Santa Claus. Uh, and people are like, oh, you took all the magic out of it. Blah, 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 blah. We we played Santa, like we had Santa Claus stuff. We just viewed him as a fun game. We talked about the magic as a fun thing. It's fantasy. Um, I think lamenting over the removal of, of magic as presented as real is an insult to the beauty of reality. I know other people will disagree with me on this one, but... Uh, we actually love fantasy. We love making up stories. We, you know, read a lot of fantasy. We did make up a lot of stories together when we were young, when, when she was young. And we, but we just knew there were stories, right? In fact, the Santa Claus thing inspired her to make a whole separate character about, you know, <laughs> living on Saturn and blah, blah, blah. Because she was like, oh, anyone, we can make up magical stories. That's cool. Um, So... I viewed that as a little bit of a lie. I wasn't, I, I couldn't bring myself to, to um, earnestly try and convince her that Santa Claus was real. Um, and I don't regret it at all. I'm going to do the same thing with, with my, my youngest because there wasn't any, there didn't seem to be any magic lost. She still had all of the excitement and magic. And in fact, she was inspired to make up stories of her own. Um, and by the way, the elf on the shelf is pure evil. So don't do that. Um, and I would say one, one last thing about not lying. It includes admitting when you're wrong, you have to apologize, even if it's to a toddler or a baby. Uh, I've certainly apologized for raising my voice or whatever. Like if you do something, you apologize. You know what? They, you know, just cause they're short doesn't mean they don't deserve an apology. Tree Surgeon says, Santa Claus often sets up a strange relationship of distrust with the parents. Yeah, and I wasn't willing to risk that. And I know it sounds like a minor thing, and people make it out to be a minor thing, but um, there's no need for it, actually. In my experience, there's no need. I could just, you know, the only thing I had to tell her was, look, a lot of parents tell their kids this is real, so don't go telling other kids that it's a game that we're playing. It's just a game. The truth of it is it's just a game. I mean... How the heck do you think he, you know, I mean, there's like so much obvious magic contradictions, right? 
it's clearly just a game, but but it's a fun game and we like to play it and let's pretend when we do it. And like there's a radio station you can listen to that will say when Santa Claus where he is right now. But like you can do all that fun stuff um, and just say, but, you know, parents tell their kids this thing. So don't 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 go ruin it for them. Uh, we didn't have a problem with that. But all right. Uh, another guideline. Never say because I said so. Um, why can you never say because I said so? I mean, look, if you're going to adopt the epistemology of reason, the answer should be pretty obvious. Because I said so isn't a reason. It's not a valid argument. It's a thinly veiled threat. So if you don't have a reason, if you don't have a good reason, that is your fault. If a kid beats you in an argument, it is your fault. Let them win. Show them that reasons should always win, especially, I mean, even against you, but especially against you. Now, again, if they want you to do something that involves, like, if asking you to do something, you know, because I'm too tired to drive to the store is a reason. Like, I'm too tired. I don't want to. I'm too tired. Like, but it's not a reason for why do you need to brush your teeth? Because I said so. Not a reason. Uh, another guideline gets to really fall in love with answering why. Um, if, you, uh, if you're a startup person, you've probably heard the five whys. Five whys is a strategy to get to the root of any problem. Um, you just ask why five times in a row. Why is an amazing question. People get frustrated by it. I, maybe it's just because they don't have patience. I don't know. Um, maybe they view their kids as pets, which means that they're decoration. They're just... You're supposed to be seen and not heard, and would they just shut up with the whys? I, I I see that, I guess. I don't understand that mentality. Um, you can get to really, 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 really interesting discussions very quickly if you take why seriously. Like, I remember getting from why are buses yellow to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, like, very quickly. Um, and, and I, and it, you know, of it, like many of the whys, it ends with, I don't know. <laughs> Let's go look that up. I don't know. Right. Yay. The internet exists. So often it like offered in the why game would end up with like, let's Google search that. I don't know why to think. I mean, that's true with the physical world, right? Um, sometimes ethics, you can, you know, th there are things you can get to wise and you well, you know, you explain, but, um, but you know, physical world stuff, it, it's super interesting. There's kids are super curious. And the reason they're asking why is because they are inherently rational. They don't need to be taught to ra be rational. They are inherently rational. They're looking to see if the world makes sense, if the physical world makes sense, and other stuff. Um, and they kind of expect it to make sense, which is why they're asking why. Well, why does that work? Like, that's a, that's a, why is a, a nice old, uh, <laughs> almost axiomatic question, right? It's a, it's a good old cause and effect question. It's a great philosophical question. Take it seriously. Um, it's also actually good with uh, history. Um, I've found, you know, you can you can do things through history. Like, well, what happened when X, Y, and Z was tried or tried? Or let's provide context. You learned this thing about history. Like the leftist indoctrination in schools, by the way, largely relies on lack of context. That's typically when we're talking about history. It's, it's often it's just lack of context, right? So yes, your teacher's right. There was slavery. Uh, let's provide some context. <laughs> it was in all history, through all of time. Here are all the people who did slavery. Slavery is normal. We can look everywhere to see it. It's in the Bible. It's literally everywhere. 
Enlightenment ideas were used to defeat it finally, and Britain actually ended it for the most part. And by the way, thanks to Hillary Clinton, there's still an open slave trade market in Libya. Maybe throw that last part out, but you can have a context discussion, right? Um, yeah, there was child labor in the 19th century, and it was sad. What was it like for children before that? What percentage of them died on the farm? Compared to what is a great question that can go with, with why as you're guiding them when they're asking about something. Well, compared to what? Because it opens up this question of like, well, what's the context? Compared to what? Because um, another thing leftists do is they compare everything to leftist utopia and then they complain that it's not that, right? But a better question is, well, compared to what? You know, capitalism has got all these problems. Yeah, compared to what? Monarchy? Communism? Go down the list. Better than all of them right? Um, it's a great opportunity, I think, to research about truth. Um, you know, the truth about history, the truth about, you know, whatever narratives. Okay, another uh, quick one. This is taking longer than I thought, sorry. Uh, another another guideline here, uh, well, I'm, I'm on number seven, I'll try and speed up, is, um, is just the recognition that broad ethics are actually pretty easy to teach using universalization. I talked about universalization already. What happened if we applied this in a broader context, like we just don't obey, you know, we don't uh, honor promises anymore, right? Um, broad ethics are pretty easy to do with universaliz universalization. Maybe not detailed ethics, but broadly, it's pretty easy. Don't hit. Would you like to live in a world where everyone went around hitting each other? If the answer to that is yes, by the way, that's also easy to combat. Oh, really? Let's count how many people are much bigger and meaner and psychopathic than you are. Do you still want to live in a world like that? Okay. Don't steal. You want to live in a world where people steal from each other. Oh, yeah, I want to live in that. If they say yes to that one, I will steal your favorite toy now. All right. So, um, yeah, that's pretty easy to do. Uh, with stuff like sharing, sharing is one that I think people like to talk about a lot. Um, Sharing is not an ethical imperative. It's very important to understand the difference between uh, the obligation to share and benevolence. Those are two different things. Um, and uh, sharing is not a moral obligation, unless you're Marxist. Um, you don't have to share. But if you do share then Tommy might be willing to share with you. And if you expect Tommy to share with you, you probably should reciprocate. Okay, you're not in the mood to share. That's okay. How fun is it to not share? Right? Maybe he doesn't like hanging out with Tommy at all. So that's why he doesn't want to share. So stop hanging out with Tommy. Right? He's got preferences. Kids do have moods and preferences just like adults. Don't force them to override them with some kind of, you know, Marxist, altruistic, like, you got to share. Why? It's, it can be nice to share. It can be benevolent to share. But if you're not feeling benevolent towards someone, you don't know what Tommy's like. You don't know why. Maybe there's a reason he doesn't like Tommy or doesn't want to share with Tommy. Maybe he's just in a grumpy mood and he needs to deal with his grumpy mood and deal with the consequences of not sharing and having Tommy shun him and like whatever. Let it happen. Um, maybe parents are embarrassed that their kid doesn't share. I don't know. Um. Richard Petz, again, says the loss 
of innocence is both tragic and empowering, but necessary for truly becoming a human. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that this is kind of part of building that strength we were talking about, right? It's, um, you can't be sheltered. You've got to fail. Failure is very important. Um, one related thing to the sharing stuff, I won't, I won't get into this too much, but you do want to train them to, uh, understand and rely on, or understand the value of their instincts. Again, not as ways to win arguments, <laughs> um, but as, uh, tools that they can use, um, particularly for things like their personal safety. There's a book called Protecting the Gift by Gavin DeBecker. I highly recommend it. Um, maybe you should read The Gift of Fear first, which is also by Gavin DeBecker. Um, that's for adults, but Protecting the Gift is about kids. Um, but, you know, we would play games. We still play these games. Like, uh, you go into a store, have interactions, encourage your kid to have interactions actually with other adults. You go pay. Here's the money. I'll stand back, watch them pay. Encourage them to have interactions. And then afterwards, you can how'd it go? Um, and if you get weird vibes off of someone, you can have a conversation about that. That man, I didn't like that man. He seemed creepy. Oh, why? Why did he seem creepy? Help them break that down and understand what they're, what they're experiencing. Why does this, you know, my daughter now, like when we go into like a little convenience store or something, I mean, I wish I was this observant but like we'll come back out and she'll be like did you see that guy wearing green flip-flops and blah, blah, blah. he had a this that going on blah, blah, blah. i didn't like it because i think you know, like he just she's just observing all this stuff okay i didn't notice the dude i was busy looking at candy or whatever um all right uh, a quick note on grades um the primary purpose of school ought to be actual learning we do live in a world where accreditation is possible people value or is important. People do value credentials. So there's a balance there. Um, but one of my favorite Hemingway quotes with respect to um, growth and, and, and learning is there's, he says, there's nothing noble in being superior to your fellow man. True nobility is being superior to your former self. So I try and make school and grades and all that kind of stuff about um, growth. It's, it's about growth, not, not about status compared to other people. Um, and I try and treat grades primarily as status reports on your personal products for you, product, your personal um, progress on for your own consumption. Um, and try and actually mean it if you're going to do that. I've tried. This is not an area I've done a great. I, well, I don't know. I don't know what happened. <laughs> she obsesses over A minuses like they're, you know, the plague. Uh, so maybe there's some genetic factors in there. Maybe I unconsciously communicated some neuroticism about grades. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that wasn't my intent. So I'm, eh. <laughs> I'm not batting a thousand. Um, but help them to learn to evaluate their failures. Not just grades, but everything else. When they fail at something, when something doesn't go well, sit them down, have a conversation with them about why they failed, what they can learn from it, teach them failure is normal, failure is a learning opportunity. That's what it is. So, um, yes, Richard Petz, she's outdoing me in situational awareness. Yeah, she is. Absolutely. Uh, I didn't even hear that phrase until I was in my twenties. So, all right. Um, last, the last guideline here, this is a pretty simple one. Um, your child is not you. Let them be not you. Uh, that, by the way, that's easy to say, very hard to do. Um, it's easy to project your desires. 
your fears, your psychological foibles all on your child. Um, look, they might, they're related to you, so they may behave in ways they live in a house with you, so they may pick up some habits, but they're not you. Um, so pay attention to who they're becoming without the expectation that they become what you imagine they'll become or that you want them to become or anything like that. Um, and this is something that I think is just a question you should be asking yourself periodically. Am I, am I letting this kid be this kid and not like, I really, I really wanted my daughter to play hockey. And so I was being like, weirdly, like she likes ice skating. So we would go and I would be weirdly like, she'd be like, oh, maybe I want to take ice skating lessons. And I'd be like, you sure you don't want to play hockey? Hockey lessons? <laughs> I was like, all right, she doesn't want to play hockey. She wants a horseback ride. That's what she does. Um, but you know, be careful. Uh, it's easy. It's easy. To, and there's nothing wrong with sharing your passions. That's fine. Just, just you know, be aware uh, that they're not you. So if you do these kind of things, again, this is a incomplete list, but I, you know, I think it's a decent starting point. If you do these kind of things, you won't. Um, you won't need to lecture them about why there are two sexes and why communism is stupid. Um, you know, earlier when I was talking about spouses, I said that metaphysics and epistemology were important because they kind of set you in this, this path and you'll meet at the horizon. They're your direction. You're, you're going in the same direction. The same is true for kids. The same is true for kids, right? You set them in the right direction, right? It's, it's the it's the most important tool for them for the same reason. And they also need the emotional and psychological tools that we've talked about. So, um, you know, again, like I said, keep in mind the goal. I, I just threw this goal together based on what I was thinking off the top of my head. This isn't like after a lot of studies, I was like, oh, I hadn't really articulated the goal until tonight. Um, I kind of knew it in my head, but this, this formulation is brand new. So if there's things that you want to add or change or whatever, um, you know, write it down, but write down. I, I would have written this down had I thought about it earlier. Now I have for my, my second child. Um, you know, I want, you know, the goal I said was an independent, resilient, rational thinker with a visceral understanding of uh, individual rights, the intestinal fortitude to resist evil, the foresight to prioritize their own long-term happiness. There's probably a bunch of other stuff you can throw in there. Um, but I also said the focus here should be on your actions. Your actions are what teach them in this regard, not what you say. So you need to really develop empathy for your child. And what I mean by that isn't, you know, cry about them and fawn over them. What I mean is see things from your child's perspective and ask if what you're doing encourages them to develop into the adult that you want them to develop into, right? I mean, an easy, here's an easy, um, here's an easy way empathy might change the way you speak to a child. Imagine a 30-foot-tall person towering over you and yelling at you. That's intimidating. That's what it's like for a kid. <laughs> a little kid. 30 is a little bit high. Maybe a 20-foot person. Right? That's what it's like. This is why you see uh, a lot of people who are good or, or at least know this skill for early childhood education. You see them squat down and, and look kids in the eye to have conversations. They don't have to raise their voice. They're on their level and they have a conversation with them. So, but that, that just comes from empathy. It comes from imagining like, oh, this was a Maria Montessori thing. I think imagine the kid's perspective of what's going on. I'm like, oh, 
there's a giant person yelling. That's scary. That's much different than the giant is like in my face talking gently to me. He's come down to my level. He's using a calm voice. Um, and, you know, sometimes I've said to my daughter when she's upset with me, this is just a thing to keep in mind. I've said to her and she knows this. I care more about what your 30-year-old self thinks of my parenting than what you think today. Like that's my goal isn't to please you. It's to please your adult self. I want her to look back and go, yep, I'm glad he did all those things. Um, so that's that's kind of one way to keep that in, in mind from a long term. So trust that your child has the natural capacity to be the person that you you think they can be. Trust that your conclusions are correct. Paranoia about making sure that they agree with you is a sign that you're unsure that you've reached the right conclusion. Because if you're sure you've reached the right conclusion and you've armed them with the tools to think, you must view their agreement as inevitable eventually. And if you're paranoid about that and you feel like, you, oh my God, I can't expose them to this. I mean, obviously you don't want to expose things to kids when they're too young and you don't want to send them to indoctrination camp intentionally. But you can't hide all that stuff from them. And if you're paranoid about having to lecture them all the time about the right way, the right way this, and the right way that, the lectures aren't going to work. And it, it's an indication that you're unsure of your own conclusions. So, um, you know, cultivate their mental and psychological tools. Trust that those tools will lead them down the right path, right? Maybe even a better path than the path that you were led down and that you are on now. So, all right. That is the end. Uh, that was long. It was two full hours. I did not expect that. Um, my daughter laughed at me today because I was going to start the show. And she said, uh, I always say, oh, maybe it'll be short this week. And I said, I, I think maybe it's going to be short this week. And she said, you always say that it's not going to be short. It's not. It's long. So um, anyway, thank you all. Thank you to Richard Petz for all the super chats. Thank you to everyone for participating. Um, an enormous thanks to those of you who support us financially. You can go to unsafespace.com to do that. Uh, get your name in the credits, all that fun stuff. I probably should update the credits uh, soon. I've just been been kind of busy, so I will do that. As a reminder, we do like to talk about uh, troublesome arguments. If you have arguments you're trying, having trouble refuting, arguments that you would like to make but are having trouble making, bring those up in Discord, um, and we'll try and talk about them on the show in the future. Uh, let's see. What do we have going on today? Was There was a Rebel Civics today, in case you missed it. It was with Keith Bissett, as it always is. I think he talked about nuclear war. That's a fun topic. Um, we Next Tuesday, we've got another 451 Degrees with Alex, but I don't think we had anything yesterday. Um, Monday, Narrative Dissonance was uh, Leonidas Johnson from Informed Dissent. Great conversation. Uh, with Juliet and I had on Monday, if you want to go check that out. I think we have Scotty Nell Hughes next Monday. So... Um, so there you go. Token Minority Report is tomorrow. I don't know if occasional levity is, is happening this Friday or not, but maybe. Um, book Club. Book Club is October 30th. Juliet is hosting Book Club. I think it's not the normal time of 9 a.m. I think it's 11 a.m. Pacific, but I'm not 100% sure. It's Slaughterhouse-Five by Kurt Vonnegut. It's a fast, easy read. Weird. I'd never read any Vonnegut other than uh, Harrison Bergeron. Bergeron? Uh, Bergeron? That one I had read, which is a short story. This is the first novel uh, I ever read from Vonnegut. Weird, easy, fun, worth the read. You got plenty of time to do it between now and October 30th. So if you want to do that, go do that. All right. Um, uh, 
And lastly, Richard Petz says, check your email, Carter. Thanks. I will check it. Thank you, Richard. Um, yeah, I will check my email uh, and get back to you. Thanks, everyone, for watching. And for some reason, I feel like playing a silly clip. So let me see. I've got all these silly clips sitting here. Here, here's a good one. Your hamburger comes with a dose of misogyny. So we'll leave you with that. Deep, deep, deep insight. Uh, have a good evening, everyone. Until next time. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. It would be better for your health if you forgot what you just heard. That should be easy for someone of your intelligence. The following co-conspirators are hereby ordered to watch CNN. Experts agree that 87,000 new tax collectors will make inflation feel like less of a problem. I think we can agree that the FBI's track record speaks for itself. If you think about it, only government-sanctioned experts should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake. See, this article says that most people die in their beds. I figure as long as I stay out of bed, I'm safe. What? It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Where are you going to sleep? In my recliner. You know, the tan one in the TV room? Well, I'll go to the coffee shop, slide into a booth, pull my hat down. Hey, how many people you know died in a coffee shop?